welcome to the Theology Mill podcast brought to you by Whipfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle. I am the digital marketing manager here at Whipfinstock and the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with leading authors and thinkers in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, please also stop by our website at whipfinstock.com, where you can browse our catalog and also check out our blog. You're listening right now to the second episode in our Patochka booth. The Patochka booth is a three-part series of interviews on the Czech philosopher and dissident Jan Patochka, who lived from 1907 to 1977. These interviews will explore his philosophical and political thought, his biography and context, and his import for theology. So on this episode, I speak with Dr. David Lloyd Duesenberry. Dr. Duesenberry is a senior fellow at the Danube Institute and a visiting professor at Eidvos Rand University in Budapest. He's also the author of I Judge No One, A Political Life of Jesus, published by Oxford University Press in 2022, as well as the author of a forthcoming volume on Jan Patochka. So without any further ado, thank you so much for listening, and we really hope you enjoy this conversation. So I am here with Dr. David Lloyd Duesenberry for our Patochka booth, which is on all things Jan Patochka, the Czech philosopher. David is the author of I Judge No One, A Political Life of Jesus, which um, came out just last year in 2022. And he's also a commentator on Jan Patochka and his philosophy of history. So as we get started here, David, um, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, maybe what you do, and also how you came to study Jan Patochka? Yeah, well, it's such a, such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on. Um, so I'm dialing in from uh, Budapest, Hungary, which is where I've been for the last two years. And um, I'm a senior fellow at the Danube Institute, um, which is uh, one of the kind of initiatives or um, uh, institutes of the Batyani Leos Foundation, which is one of the sort of cultural foundations of the Hungarian nation. So I do a, a number of different things for them, overseeing research and producing research of my own on basically the Christian kind of roots of European legal and political culture. And I'm also a visiting professor at the old, the former University of Budapest, which has now been renamed uh, Udvosh Lorand University. And um, so I teach history of religion, history of philosophy. And actually this semester I'm teaching volumes three and four of Michel Foucault's uh, History of uh, Sexuality, um, which is not totally unrelated to our topic today because Foucault read some Patochka, and I think um, Patochka may have influenced the late Foucault, in fact. Mm. Interesting. Okay, and then how did, how did you kind of come to um, study Jan Patochka himself? So it's by way of uh, Derrida. Um, Derrida wrote about Patochka uh, in the 1990s, a text which might be familiar, uh, I'm sure, to you and, and maybe to some of your listeners. Uh, so in 95, he wrote The Gift of Death, and um, which is really, among other things, a sustained meditation on Jan Patochka's heretical essays, which is one of the main uh, texts I've been working on. And um, so, yeah, I... I, I 
was first introduced to him by Derrida, and um, and then in the early 2000s, Stanford published a really fine translation of a different um, text by Jan Patoschka called Plato and Europe, which is another text we'll be discussing. And um, so I read that in the early 2000s and sort of um, came back to him uh, when I moved to Central Europe. Got it. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so this is kind of our fun question that we like to start with, um, which is if you could put three other figures, dead or alive, uh, in a room all together, and Jan Patochka is already in there, so he's he's figured in the round table, and you could kind of listen to their conversation, which figures would you choose and why? Well, I think the third I've already mentioned. Um, it makes sense to me for a variety of reasons to put uh, Derrida and Patochka across a table, because in a sense, Derrida did this himself not so long after Patochka's death. And it's, it's not only possible, but likely they would have met um, had it not been for the Iron Curtain. So I think that's a very reasonable um, pair to, to start off with. And then I suppose, honestly, um, the two others would be Patochka's primary interlocutors who were also uh, Derrida's primary interlocutors, which would be um, Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger. Um, I know both those names will be familiar to your listeners. I see that you've done a lot on phenomenology. Mm -hmm. And um, so I could say a bit more about why they're interesting, but I think Husserl, Heidegger, and Derrida would make for um, a really intriguing, um, subtle, and challenging uh, conversation with uh, with Patochka. Sure, sure. Yeah, what, what would be like some of the maybe specifics of the conversation that you'd be especially interested in hearing? So the late, um, the late Patochka really begins to focus on the question of Europe, the idea of Europe, the history of Europe, the spiritual legacy of Europe. And um, this is not so, this theme, this preoccupation is not so present in his early work. And quite frankly, it's worth remembering, it was not so obvious in the mid-1970s to be talking about Europe, because of course, Europe had been cut in half mm -hmm. um, for several decades, and there was no sign of a reunification in uh, the mid-1970s in the Czech Republic, um, or Czechoslovakia, rather. Uh, so this is one of uh, Patochka's late uh, almost obsessions, you can say, and he advances some radical ideas. He himself calls them quite um, radical and surprising. And I really think that um, this stems from his reading of Husserl's great book, The Crisis um, of European Sciences in, um, in the 1930s. Um, so Husserl was a, a mentor of Patochka's um, in the 1930s. Patochka is kind of correctly described as one of Husserl's last students. Mm -hmm. And um, in the same period, um, Patochka was attending lectures given by Martin Heidegger. Um, and uh, Heidegger and Husserl had already become alienated at this point um, because Heidegger had aligned himself with the, uh, the National Socialist regime and behaved really abominably towards his, uh, his mentor, Husserl. But nevertheless, Patochka kind of from the beginning situates himself kind of between Husserl and Heidegger. We can discuss that more. Um, but I 
think with Husserl, the crisis is really the, the text, which um, seems to be with Patochka to the very end. And this question of um, what the essence of Europe is, what the spiritual legacy of Europe is, what sets it off from other great civilizations, and whether it has a future. This is, these are all questions that Husserl had raised and that Patochka continues to pursue. Yeah, sure. Okay, so who, for our familiars who are maybe not as familiar, who was this, who was this man, Jan Patochka? What were maybe some of the major events um, in his life, whether kind of personal, intellectual, or otherwise? Well, I mean, I think, uh, honestly, the greatest um, event in his life was the Second World War and the onset of the Cold War. Uh, because basically, to, to put it very simply, Jan Patochka was a great academic philosopher. I've already mentioned his connection to Husserl and Heidegger. And um, he was a devotee, really, a devotee of the tradition of phenomenology. And it seems clear that he would have um, given his life to teaching in a university. But his refusal to sort of um, collaborate with either the, the Nazi German regime or the Soviet communist regime meant that with a very few number of years being accepted, he was, um, he was banned from teaching for his entire mature life. And um, so he's, he's kind of a Professor Monquet, I suppose we could say. And... Uh, the reason, the only reason we, we still know of him and people like Derrida were able to write about him in the 90s is because even though he was uh, forbidden to teach in the universities in Prague, um, he nevertheless participated in a number of kind of clandestine meetings, which are sometimes called the underground universities. So private seminars, quite secretive seminars were held in um, private homes in Prague in the 1970s. And it's this, this milieu, this context, which really um, gives rise to the, the two texts I've already mentioned, his heretical essays in the philosophy of history, and then Plato in Europe, um, both of which are circling the same questions, I think, but um, in somewhat different ways. Sure. Um, and I, I suppose, so I think his exclusion from the university because of his refusal to collaborate um, to sign on to either the, uh, the the German regime or the Soviet regime. I think that is really the defining feature of his life. And then what leads to his death is his decision um, in January 1977 to not only sign a, um, a human rights charter, it's called Charter 77, um, but also to become its spokesman. And um, this was a charter which tried to publicly hold the Soviet regime in uh, Czechoslovakia to account, not kind of in light of abstract principles or, you know, um, revolutionary uh, uh, commitments, but rather they were just trying to publicly state that the Czech regime was not honoring the, um, the commitments it itself had made in a number of um, documents and covenants. So this was in January of 77 that he became the spokesman for this movement. And um, by March, he was dead. So he was um, very heavily, brutally interrogated by the Czech state police. And um, one of those interrogations seems to have basically led to his, um, his death in uh, March of 77. So he was um, 
excluded from the university and um, and then essentially taken out by the state. Uh, that that seems to rather accurately summarize his uh, his life. Had he experienced any kind of police intervention before? Because I know that the yeah. the underground seminars you were speaking of were kind of constantly being um, uh, kind of constantly had uh, moles, uh, police, uh, you know, kind of intervening in them. So had he had any kind of encounters with law enforcement or with the secret police before um, before this interrogation that happened in 1977? Do you know? I don't know. It's a, it's an excellent question, um, but I have not um, seen any references so far to um, previous interrogations or certainly incarcerations. So, sure, sure. My, my vague my vague impression is that um, the the final uh, kind of confrontation with the state was at least the decisive and and yeah, yeah. The, the most prominent one. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, so what are what are kind of some of the key themes or ideas that are run through his his corpus of work? Well, I mean, I think there are several um, that would be of interest, you know, for us in this conversation. Um, one is um, really that uh, for you know, within a, a variety of horizons which we can discuss, um, Patochka believes that m- the modern idea of history, not only Marxist-Leninist, but he would argue also kind of Western capitalist, the modern idea of history is both materialistic and in some sense deterministic. So the idea of progress he sees as a kind of deterministic um, uh, theory of of human history, which has a a fundamentally kind of materialistic um, set of um, presuppositions underlying it. So I think one of the most important things he argues is simply that the soul, the human soul, is at the very center of history and that um, history is not, in a sense, a, um, a sequence which can have a science. Um, it is rather a sequence of events in which every human soul is a player and thus fundament- the fundamental phenomenon of history is decision. And um, he even goes further and says the, the, the most fundamental decision any human has to make is what he himself calls conversion, metanoia. Um, so I, I really do think that he advances a kind of radically distinctive philosophy of history when you look at um, a lot of 19th and 20th century philosophy. So I think this would be one thing. Another would be that the, uh, the Europe he speaks of in many of his late writings, um, is also a Europe which he believes already in the 1970s has disappeared. So he says very, very forcefully, Europe has disappeared probably forever. And that adds kind of both a depth and an intensity, but also a poignancy to the fact that um, he, he, he makes this claim that Europe has disappeared precisely in, in the course of lectures titled Plato in Europe. So he was devoting himself to uh, a, a legacy which he, he thought was not only in peril, but had actually uh, already vanished. So I think this idea of the end of Europe, he also used the phrase Europe after Europe, is quite distinctive. And really, um, one could say, I mean, you always have to be careful using this word, but one could say that he was rather prophetic. I think he captures the mood in the 1970s that was certainly not common in the 1970s in Western Europe, 
but is becoming more common today in Europe that we really are a, a civilization in crisis. And, and then I think the third would be that um, the Europe which has vanished has vanished in large part because it's essentially Christian. And um, so I think we'll discuss much more of this, but he was um, very firmly committed to the idea that the spiritual legacy of Europe and the West is inextricably linked to um, Christianity and to Christianity's um, sustained engagement with Greek and Roman philosophy. And uh, this was, again, certainly not stated with so much force and emphasis in the 20th century by most philosophers as it was by Patochka. And I, I could add, this is one of the things that's so fascinating about Derrida's reading of Patochka is um, Patochka has been read by many Czech specialists as a kind of primarily or exclusively phenomenological and kind of secularist thinker, which I diverge from and Derrida diverges from. And he really says that Potochka is someone who sees, I mean, I'm actually quoting uh, Derrida here. He, he calls Potochka one who follows the traces of a genius of Christianity that is the history of Europe. So Derrida kind of conflates the, the trajectory of the genius of Christianity and the history of Europe in a way that I think Patochka does as well. Mm. So, was, I mean, yeah, with, obviously Patochka deals with a whole host of religious topics and, and, and topics specific to Christianity even. I mean, you mentioned soul and metanoia. I know he talks about faith as well. And it sounds like maybe you would describe him as in some way a religious thinker or a thinker of kind of the Christian inheritance that Europe has received. But do you know kind of what his relationship with with religion um, was? Was he was he a, a, a practicing, you know, did he practice any kind of religion or was he just a philosopher who who was very interested in these questions? My understanding, and I've spoken to some people who knew him personally, my understanding is that he was not himself religious, which in a certain sort of way makes it all the more interesting that he insisted so strongly on the Christian legacy because, of course, it was um, extremely damaging to one's career and one's family at this period in the Eastern Bloc to be uh, observant, to be devout, mm -hmm. to attend church and publicly profess. And he for a variety of reasons, in a sense, suffered a lot of the setbacks he would have suffered as a Christian, but he suffered them as a philosopher who yeah. um, spoke a great deal about Christianity. But, um, I mean, as I'm sure you well know, there are many cases of 20th century philosophers, and not only 20th century philosophers, whose connection to faith is very hard to discern. I mean, there's a huge literature on Heidegger and Catholicism and Derrida and Judaism. and um, Wittgenstein and both Judaism and Christianity. So I think I think often these questions are hard to uh, tease out. But it seems that Patochka was um, not a practicing Christian and not um, himself, not someone who had described himself as a believer, um, but one who nevertheless believed <laughs> that mm -hmm. um, Christianity had something absolutely essential to offer to thought and um, specifically to European thought. Sure. Okay. So for folks who are maybe new to reading Patochka, haven't read anything of his, where would you say would be a good place for them to start? 
I mean, personally, I think uh, the the publication I've already mentioned, the Stanford edition of Plato and Europe, is really the best place to begin. It's a beautiful, beautiful book in which he offers really quite original um, interpretations of the Greeks, not only Greek philosophy, but Greek myth, and then begins to sketch out how the Greek legacy uh, relates to the kind of Christian um, formation of Europe that we've been discussing a bit, and and also how the both legacies, the Greek and the Christian legacy, can inform the phenomenological tradition within which he works. And one of the really remarkable things about Plato in Europe is that um, this is where he kind of uh, sets out in a historical way through a set of readings of texts. He sets out his um, theme of care for the soul. This is what he believes that Greco-Roman philosophy ultimately consisted in, care for the soul. And he believes that Christianity kind of modulates this in a number of uh, interesting and fruitful ways. Christianity, too, is a, a form of care for the soul. And so I think um, at the same time, this set of lectures introduces people to, um, to this great theme in Patochka of care for the soul and also allows them to read really you know, canonical, fascinating texts in the history of philosophy in a new way. And as I've already said, not just the history of philosophy. I mean, he has really extraordinary readings of like, you know, the, the Oedipus myth, um, which, of course, is so important for, you know, Freud and 20th century uh, Western letters. And, and then it also allows them to begin to see why all of this, why, why these readings allow him to advance this new um, kind of theory of the history of Europe, which he says is first and foremost a history of the soul. And... He himself says, look, I realize this is kind of a crazy idea that um, some sort of philosophical therapy, uh, which gets picked up by the monasteries, is really at the heart of uh, a civilization which leads to massive colonial expansion and to this tremendous conflagration in the middle of the 20th century, this 30-year catastrophe. But nevertheless, he says that's what I think. That's what I think is behind it all. But not behind it all in the sense that um, the Platonic Christian tradition is what leads to the catastrophe. Quite the uh, quite the contrary. He argues that Europe sort of began to deviate and to defect from the legacy already in the early modern period. Mm. So he kind of attributes a lot of the kind of global expansion of Europe, leading to a number of kind of tragedies and abuses. I think we'll all know about. And, and certainly he attributes the two world wars, which, according to him, put an end to classical Europe, um, uh, to the rejection of the Platonic Christian legacy, not at all to the perpetuation of it. So I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's really an amazing book. Um, it's a great place to begin. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for us to hear from you more about kind of this her you know kind of heritage that Europe receives um especially from you know as you said kind of platonism and christianity and so forth but before we before we get into that i want to kind of talk about this idea of patochka as a dissident because it seems like in at least in western scholarship that he's perhaps known just as much as a dissident um as he is a philosopher or perhaps at least as a phenomenologist so would you would you say this descriptor of, of dissident um, is accurate 
And then if it is, uh, what would you say exactly makes him a dissident? Well, I certainly think it's accurate. I mean, I use that in my in my Budapest lectures on Potochka. Um, and um, but I think it also needs to be nuanced. So he is not a dissident in the sense that he his his political engagement was almost exclusively negative until the very end of his life. So it was his it was not his kind of public and vocal objection to the Nazi or the communist regimes, um, which made him non grata. It was simply his refusal to participate. So in a sense, he was not a kind of active or activist dissident. Um, he adopted a far more kind of, I wouldn't call it quietist. I think he himself would call it Socratic form of dissidence that, um, it wasn't public opposition to the regime. It was simply insisting upon his own private integrity and living his philosophical life that constituted his um, his resistance. Um, and then, of course, this changes in the in the 70s, um, and he concedes the necessity of um, actually voicing his concerns, which leads to him becoming the, the spokesman for the Charter 77 movement I've already mentioned. But I think, I think in a nuanced way, he's a dissident from the beginning. And um, he willingly suffered the consequences of his refusal to participate in the, uh, in the party life of the party state of first Nazi-occupied and then um, communist-occupied Prague. Um, so he could have been rehabilitated if he had made certain very obvious steps. And even though, as I've already said, it seems that basically being a, a, a professor was the great desire of his life, mm -hmm. um, he nevertheless was willing to see that uh, smashed and, and closed, foreclosed, rather than uh, make those concessions. Mm -hmm. I say one little one little point is quite interesting because um, he he makes a lot of um, he makes a lot of the daimonion of Socrates. And um, he says, you know, the daimonion of Socrates, as I'm sure you know, and, and your listeners know, never told Socrates what to do. It only ever told Socrates what not to do. And um, so it was a kind of negative form of guidance rather than a positive. And, and Patochka really claims this and kind of differentiates himself from, I mean, Marx famously said, you know, philosophers have interpreted the world and now it's, it's time for us to change it. And Patochka says quite the opposite. No, the, the, the task of the philosopher is not to change the world. The task of the philosopher is still first and foremost with dignity to say no to things that a, a very rapidly changing world is doing and wants to do and probably will do. But nevertheless, you follow the kind of negative guidance of the divine, of the daimonion, and you simply say, you can, you, the world, the regime, so on and so forth can do what it will, but I am not going to be a part of it. And he really, in a weird sort of way, he sets out this negative posture as the positive commitment of philosophy. And he links, he himself links this up with, um, with the life and death of Jesus, um, which was, as you mentioned, the theme of my last book. And so he himself sees Jesus not as a kind of positive political revolutionary, but rather as someone who also makes his indelible mark 
on uh, world history, human history, not so much, um, at least politically, not from what he says yes to, but from what he says no to, what, what we will not do. And so I think, at least in Potocka's own mind, he would like to be seen as this kind of special kind of dissident, one who suffers death in the end at the hands of the state, not because he's a militant, not because he's an agitator, but rather because he's a, a quietly but absolutely inflexibly principled person who doesn't deviate um, from what they believe they're called to do. Hmm, sure. Okay, I want to move into um, some of your own work on, on Patochka. So you you participated in a series of lectures, which you alluded to already, on Patochka, uh, which took place at the Danube Institute in Budapest in, in uh, 2021. Uh, and you were kind enough to send me um, your some of your lectures from that series. So in your in your first lecture for that series, you, you spoke about the idea of Europe in Patochka's thinking and especially kind of the many folds of intellectual inheritance, which for Patochka kind of together contribute to Europe as an idea. So you speak, for instance, um, to his treatment of Europe's inheritance of ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, um, but also ancient and medieval Christianity. So how would you describe sort of Patochka's understanding of the ways that these historical forces have contributed uh, to what he calls the idea of Europe? So, I mean, Patochka really has an extremely um, complex account of the history of Europe. And one of the things I like about his reading is that even though he insists on this kind of uh, mystical, metaphysical, spiritual register, that at the heart of at the heart of everything lies not a kind of scientific account of objective conflicts, class conflict, um, religious conflict, what have you, but rather the the kind of destiny of the soul and the question of the free decision of the soul and the soul's quest for truth. So even though he has this kind of uh, mystical theory of history, nevertheless, I have found him to be a really rather hard-headed um, historian of the kind of great blocks and great conflicts um, which shape European history, culminating, as I've already said, in the two world wars, which he really reads as a single continental conflict, global and continental conflict. But but one of the great, um, the other great conflicts, which is extremely important for him is, in fact, the Crusades. And so one way of kind of construing his idea of the history of Europe, which he himself attributes to an early work by Hegel, Hegel argues that Europe was in many ways a kind of um, a cultic and a cultural uh, unity, but not a convincing political unity before the Crusades, at least after the fall mm. of the Western Roman Empire. So this is Hegel's argument, which Patochka takes up and basically says that on, on the political level, the idea of Europe is really born in the Crusades. And there is a huge amount that we could say about that. But I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of set that out there. So it's a kind of, um, you know, not late medieval, but kind of high medieval um, starting point uh, for him in the 11th and 12th centuries. And then he really attaches a surprising amount of importance 
to the formal dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, which only occurred in the early 19th century. Um, this makes actually more sense when we remember, as of course we've not forgotten, that he was a Central European, and the mm -hmm. Holy Roman Empire was basically a kind of, um, at least for much of its history, a Central European uh, uh, political uh, constellation. So in a sense, you could say kind of from the millennial year of 1000 to roughly the, the early 19th century, 1800, Napoleon um, is where he sees um, a, a, a meaningfully unified European history uh, unfolding. Of course, he's very well attuned to the fact that the Reformation introduces a huge rupture. And he's very well attuned to the fact that the, uh, the discovery of the New World and intensified trade slash colonialism in other parts of the old world um, kind of coincided in the early modern period. And so both the, um, both the, uh, uh, the religious division of Europe and the um, opening of Europe onto the globe um, had massive effects, which he uh, talks a fair bit about. But let's just say, roughly speaking, you know, the year 1,000, uh, 1, um, to 1,800 is kind of his um, unified uh, European uh, period. But before this, I mean, he attaches, he attaches huge significance to what we might call the ecclesiastical unity of Europe in, in the early Middle uh, Ages. And um, so he really sees, which a lot of other historians do too, including Michel Foucault, um, whom I've already mentioned, but he really sees the monasteries as the true heirs of Greco-Roman philosophy. So he sees uh, the monasteries as the place in which, even in the absence of continent-wide political uni unity, this uh, concern for the soul, cultivation of the soul, and, um, and preservation of the, the textual legacy of uh, the Greek and Roman worlds was taking place. So there are different levels on which I guess the European idea uh, unfolds for him. Sure. No, thank you for all the texture you provided there. So what, yeah, getting kind of to what Potochka has in mind when he talks about the idea of Europe um, or sort of, I guess you could say the spiritual unity of Europe or something like this. What, what exactly does he mean when he talks about Europe as an entity in, in this sort of way? So he, um, he offers actually a number of rather precise um, formulations, but all, all of them nevertheless, I think, would leave a lot of people dissatisfied because ultimately it seems that what he's referring to is basically something like the, um, the unity of the Catholic Church, um, which, of course, has been lost. But he basically says that Europe um, had and lost a, um, a conception of its own unity, which was not founded in force. It was founded in something higher and purer than force. And this higher and purer ideal was actually something which was capable of limiting the deployment of force. And so he would see Napoleon and um, Hitler um, on some sort of continuum um, and, and, and the Russians the, the, the kind of Soviet seizure of, of the eastern half of Europe on some sort of continuum, all of these are attempts to um, provide a political unity 
uh, to Europe simply on the level of uh, kind of military and uh, political control, direct control. And so he seems to have seen a far more kind of nuanced and uh, uh, more highly articulated kind of uh, form of unity when in the earlier centuries when the church and many, many states sort of uh, collaborated in immensely complicated ways to hold together this, um, this sphere we sometimes call Christendom, um, even in the absence of any sort of, uh, you know, uh, unified secular authority, which, you know, strangely enough, of course, um, after Patochka's death, the EU has kind of emerged as a increasingly unified secular authority for the continent. And it is one that we can all agree, whether we always um, are partial to the particular um, expressions of value that the EU wields and, and, and holds very close to its, um, itself. Nevertheless, we can say like the EU is actually a project of values in many respects. So it is actually interesting to speculate how Patochka would have positioned himself relative to the EU had he lived to see it. And I tend to think that he would have been actually very, very keen on some of the founding figures of the EU who are very Christian democratic in their outlook and their inspiration. Many of them were quite devout Catholics. And I think he would have been thrilled at the, uh, the early moves to create what has become the EU. I'm not very confident he'd be happy with where the EU is today. Sure. Yeah, I mean, in regards to Europe, uh, one of the claims Patochka makes in his heretical essays in the philosophy of history is that, that Europe has in some sense kind of ended in the 19th and 20th centuries, or that it's kind of ended in the 19th century and in the 20th, um, we've kind of seen the, the fallout of, of this ending, or at least that Europe has kind of undergone, right, kind of some sort of fairly serious deformation of its of its identity, especially its spiritual identity. So in what ways does Patochka see these centuries, the 19th and 20th centuries, as kind of drawing Europe to some kind of a close? So, I mean, um, as I've already said, he has really interesting readings, not only of kind of the spiritual struggles, um, but of the political struggles in the 19th and 20th centuries, which I think are, are interesting to read with the with the decades of distance we now have yeah so i think in uh in in patochka's heretical essays in the philosophy of history which he wrote right about the same time as plato in europe he sets out some really interesting readings both of the political history and the spiritual history of um, europe in the 19th and 20th centuries and one of the many interesting aspects of his readings is that in both centuries he really looks at the fact that it is the spiritual heirs of Europe more than Europe, which actually begins to determine the destiny of the European continent. Now, the two heirs he looks at um, are Russia and the United States. And of course, this has a rather contemporary ring to it, which I think um, he would have not found at all surprising. So the kind of um, structure Patochka sets up already in the 1800s, and of course he's writing this more or less under Russian occupation, Soviet occupation in the 1970s, that might have influenced the way uh, the prominence he gives to Russia in uh, 19th century European history. But nevertheless, I think there's a lot of material to back it up. 
So basically, he says that in the 19th century, Russia was already in many ways Europeanized. This is a process which begins quite clearly in the 18th century. So Catherine the Great and uh, uh, Peter the Great. Um, so, um, so Russia is already in many ways Europeanized and Europeanizing, and yet it's significantly, as an Orthodox nation and empire, it is significantly more conservative or reactionary, in fact, than continental Europe. And so it was Russia, for instance, many more things could be uh, brought forward, but it was Russia that came to the aid of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the middle of the 19th century when there were a host of uh, kind of popular uprisings against various um, powers, including the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So um, Russia was in Budapest, where I'm now speaking to you from, uh, in 1848, 1849, at the behest of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as a kind of conservative or reactionary presence in Europe. Um, so on the one hand, you have Russia, Orthodox nation, empire. And on the other hand, Patochka sees the United States as representing a sort of um, progressive offshoot and heir of the European legacy. And the United States exerting increasing force, I mean, in um, European affairs in the 19th century, arguably, um, there was some influence already at the end of the 18th century, in the period of the French Revolution. But he sees the kind of Anglo-American connection firming up in the 19th century. And so some of the settlement of the Napoleonic War, where basically you have parts, the kind of eastern parts of uh, Europe looking to Russia, looking uh, a bit more reactionary, looking to the east, uh, and, and the other parts, the more western parts of Europe, closer to the UK, more maritime, more commercial, and thus in some ways more uh, looking to the United States. He sees this basic picture in the 19th century as kind of uh, reproducing itself in the 20th century in the Cold War. Um, where there's a kind of formal division of the two Europes, one under the sway of the um, of, of, of Russia and one um, more or less under the protection, one could at least say, of the United States. Of course, he is very attuned to the fact that there's a certain kind of reversal in the 20th century. Namely, it is at least arguably the case that during the Cold War, <clears throat> it is arguably the case that the Soviet Union was the kind of radically progressive heir of Europe, and the United States was a kind of defender of uh, Christian civilization, uh, Judeo-Christian civilization. Um, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm not sure the picture was always quite that simple. And I think even in the 1970s in Czechoslovakia, Patochka was attuned to kind of the radicalism of the West and the United States which um, has become a bit more palpable and visible in, in the 21st century, the early 21st century. I'm not sure he would have been entirely surprised by some of the sort of um, uh, energy and force of progressivism in, in the United States and in the West after the end of the Cold War. So I hope that's not too convoluted, but mm -hmm. um, the basic point I'm making is that he he sees the um, the kind of late modern destiny of Europe. So 1800s to late 1900s as really being heavily influenced in a variety of ways by these two eras of, of the European legacy. One, Russia, which becomes the Soviet Union, 
and uh, one the United States. Sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna jump questions actually. So, so I'm gonna hop over the question on um, questioning and mystery, um, which we'll come back to because I think that the following question dovetails nicely with your response to to um, the one we just we just discussed. Um, so, in your in one of your lectures at the at the Danube Institute, you you speak to the fact that a kind of a handful of philosophers. So, you know, you already mentioned Derrida, but also Paul Ricoeur. Um, and others have expressed a lot of concern over Patochka's final, I think it's its sixth essay in his heretical essays, with what they see and what could be interpreted as kind of a glorification of the World War One battlefront. Um, mm. So in that in that lecture of yours, you you claim that though that Derrida recur and, and the, the other interpreters who interpret it in this way, that they that they have in some way kind of fundamentally misread Patochka or not read that sixth sixth essay within the context of of his heretical essays in their entirety. So what what in your mind is kind of the nature of, of this misreading and what's maybe the alternative that you would propose for how how we could read Patochka's heretical essays? Yeah, so what happens in the sixth essay is that um, Patochka interprets, so I've kind of been discussing the 19th century um, uh, wars, the Napoleonic Wars and various revolutions, and Patochka in uh, the sixth essay interprets the entirety of the 20th century as as war. Um, so for him, what is most striking about um, living in Europe in the 1970s is the fact that even after the Second World War, um, so after these two truly unprecedented cataclysmic wars, catastrophic wars on a global scale, that there was not peace. <laughs> so he's really struck by the fact that the Cold War is a war and, um, and, and that the Second World War did not end in peace. So he really takes um, war, let's say, very, very seriously, which again, I mean, I think reading, uh, reading Patochka in the early 21st century, um, when Plato in Europe came out, might have, you know, his preoccupation with war and conflict might have seemed very distant and rather odd and strange. But of course, from our position now, um, sadly, war is, is all, too, all too present again, and even in Europe. Okay, so... What I think um, the mistake, the, the, the mistake to my mind lies in the fact that a number of interpreters have seen some statements that Patochka makes at the end of his um, essays. As you've already mentioned, to, he, they, they take these statements to be glorifying war, um, when in fact, I think they can be read as simply indicating as a phenomenon, he is a phenomenologist, as we've already established, indicating as a phenomenon that the very extremity of kind of, uh, 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 the, the, well, the extremity of the experiences that war subjects people to opens a distinctive set of possibilities for them. So he's not at all in favor of um, placing people in these extreme situations. He is, I regard him as a philosopher of peace. He very much wants Europe to be at peace. He wants the world to be at peace. But nevertheless, he says, look, there's a reason why people as significant as Théard de Chardin, who was himself a pacifist and a very, very devout Catholic, and Ernst Jünger, who was quite a militarist, 
both of whom fought in World War I, nevertheless agreed that something really extraordinary presented itself as a possibility um, at the front line. And this extremity, of course, is the constituted by the proximity to death. And it has some connection to the divine. So I think Patochka makes some rather startling statements about what, bring, what war brings us face to face with, um, which various interpreters have seen as him sort of mystifying or glorifying conflict. When in fact, I would say he's been preoccupied from the very beginning of his philosophy of history with the possibility of conversion. And what he sees at the front line is something very similar to what he describes in church, in fact. And I try to show this in, in my Budapest lectures, and I'll try to show this on in my book on Patoshka, that in church, if it's done right, you come face to face with your mortality. And you come face to face with your mortality in the company of others, all of whom you also recognize as mortal. And it is together with the others that you try to reckon with the fact that um, on the other side of death beckons God, lies God, however we want to put it. And so I, I actually think that he's trying to kind of see war as a tragic and immensely destructive and fundamentally misguided kind of um, actualization of kind of certain missteps taken in European history. But nevertheless, he believes that because it puts us face to face with death, these, um, this catastrophe at least opens up the possibility of adopting a, a, an enlightened, a converted attitude, not only towards my own death, which I'm facing at the front, but also to the life and death of those I'm fighting, who um, just as our fellow congregants in a church are um, facing their own mortality and thus are somehow close to the divine. So too, the enemy across the, the trench is um, facing his mortality. And he, according to Patochka, he is a kind of fellow participant in this extreme drama, this extreme uh, historical conflict, um, which brings us face to face with and kind of leaves us in the face of the ultimate. And um, so it's it's at the very end of his radical essays where um, Patochka, far from like uh, kind of stoking nationalist or partisan hatreds or animosities or anything like this, it's at the very end of the sixth essay where he says, it's at the front line where you can begin to understand that abyssal command to love your enemy. So this is one of the very, very few parts in the heretical essays, or to my knowledge, in the corpus of um, Patochka's writings, where he directly quotes the Gospels. And of course, I don't think anyone could really construe love of enemy as a, um, a kind of um, martial injunction. Um, so I, I, I hope that's some indication of why I think the basic mistake is that he's not glorifying, he's simply exploring what he takes to be a genuine phenomenon, which is there is something revelatory about war. And I've actually, you know, on my podcast in Budapest, I've spoken to a number of people who have experienced war, and all of them seem to kind of confirm this. There is, it's a tragic and it's an awful, but there is a kind of positivity to war, 
which has to be reckoned with and faced in some way. I think that's what Potochka is doing. But then he's also, in a sense, trying to point to something beyond conflict, which gets back to what I was saying earlier, that Europe has to have some sort of unity which does not rely on force or the clash of forces, which is what war is. And he's trying to point beyond these terrible conflicts which shaped us in the middle of the 20th century to a higher ideal, which I think is quite um, remarkable that he turns to the gospel, uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, in order to, to find that ideal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay, I mean, as we're already sort of moving into what we might call kind of a mysticism around death, um, uh, kind of a proximity to death experience at the front line, let's, for our last question, move kind of even further into, you know, sort of the mystical element of Patochka's thinking, or at least the sp- his kind of spiritual reading of history. So I know he's, he's fond of, of things like questioning and mystery, which, which he uh, speaks about explicitly. So what, what role do these, these ideas, questioning and mystery play um, in his philosophy of history? So he, um, I, I would say it's absolutely decisive. I mean, there's a really beautiful line in one of the heretical essays where he says that in, in Platonic philosophy, mystery has the last word. And this is, I think, correct to begin with. I think this is a correct reading of, of Plato. And he very much sees Christianity as an heir to this, this kind of posture and this recognition and um, and there again, I would agree with him that in Christianity, mystery has the last word. And okay, but then the question becomes, why is it so important for him? And I think, I think, I mean, there are um, huge essays that he's written, which are kind of revolving around this question. And then some of my own work on him does as well, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. So he believes that basically philosophy begins, care of the soul begins, ironically, care of that which is most our own and kind of most singular and subjective begins precisely when we ask the question, what is the world? What is the whole? What is topan, the all? Because ultimately, every meaning can only be established in relation to the meaning of all that is. And, and of course, if God is the source of all that is, which is the beginning of, uh, you know, the Apostles' Creed and so on and so forth, Bereshit, then, um, then ultimately even all that is, the meaning of all that is, uh, can only be uh, derived in relation to that which creates, that which creates and sustains all that is. Anyway, but Patochka begins with this basic fundamental assertion that the question of the meaning of the whole is the source of the care of the soul. And he is perfectly aware that the question of the meaning of the whole can never be settled. But he also argues very, very forcefully in his heretical essays, which I find fascinating. Um, He uses a a forgotten German philosopher, Wilhelm Weichedel, to argue that physical survival as a human being in the face of total meaninglessness is impossible. Like he, he, he actually argues that the the sensation, the perception of total meaningless will lead to death, full stop. Hmm. And it's actually, that's in his third essay, and it's a very interesting argument. So he basically believes we must have meaning in, in order to survive, much less to create a kind of beautiful society or 
a civilization mm -hmm. or a, an enduring cultural order. We must have meaning. And yet he believes that both philosophy and Christianity begin with the recognition that the ultimate meaning we seek can never be cognized. It can never be attained. And I'm sure your listeners know very well that, I mean, there's a, a hugely rich Christian tradition, you know, negative theology, so on and so forth, that can kind of chime with this approach to Platonism. And, and, and he sees mystery as a kind of a phenomenon within which both meaning and meaninglessness can oscillate and one can kind of recognize the impossibility of the final visio, the final vision, the final apprehension of what we so desire and so need. And nevertheless, within mystery, even the kind of pole of meaninglessness is held within a faith and a hope that the truth of the whole is there. Yeah, so I mean, I think basically the... Um, for Patoshka, care of the soul begins with questioning, and it's questioning which reveals um, both our kind of freedom, our ability to rise above and to set ourselves um, beyond um, the, the, the kind of pure conditioning of social and material forces, which would be a kind of more standard modern Marxist and other you know, progressive uh, theories of, of history. Um, so it's questioning which reveals our freedom, and it's also questioning which reveals a kind of um, an essential and fundamental um, desire for what actually is, what is true, um, and our capacity to, to kind of um, seek it. So everything begins for him with questioning, but mystery is kind of the, 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 the conceptual space which is opened up by a questioning which recognizes that it can never come to an end, precisely because it is ultimately concerned with all that is. And for you know, many Platonic philosophers and all Christian philosophers, uh, this questioning is also concerned with God, or, or first and foremost concerned with God. So I think um, basically one could say that um, uh, questioning is the beginning of history for Patochka, precisely because it reveals human freedom and our desire for truth. And as I've already said, mystery is the end. Mystery has the last word because, because it is within mystery that uh, we can experience meaninglessness, which he explores phenomenologically without succumbing to kind of the, um, the total desperation of um, one who has lost uh, the hope of, of a higher meaning. Sure. All right. Well, as we kind of come to a close here, I want to give you a chance to share what's next for you professionally. So do you have any um, kind of projects in the works, anything that you would uh, like to plug here? Oh, well, I've got, I've got uh, quite a few books um, kind of on the simmer, but um, certainly I think it's a very, it's a very kind offer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've got a book under contract titled After the Catastrophe on Potochka and the Future of Europe, in which I'll really kind of try to introduce um, readers to um, his work and, and argue that the two texts we've been discussing, Plato and Europe and Heretical Essays, are really most interesting when they're read together. And so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of present a unified reading of uh, both of those. Should be out sometime next year, I think. Okay. Awesome. Sounds delightful. I'll be, yeah, very excited to, very excited to read it myself, hopefully. Okay. So for our listeners, where can they um, find you online or, or just learn more about your work? 
Oh, well, um, I have a, a, a kind of second-rate Twitter account, um, Dusenberry David. I, I certainly welcome um, anyone and everyone to uh, check it out. And then I also have a, a, a webpage, dldusenberry.com, where I'd be happy to, uh, to answer any questions if, if your listeners have them. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, David, for your time and for your thoughtfulness. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.